So it's not just, baptism isn't just putting off sin, it's putting on obedience to God. And obviously Jesus was always obedient to the Father, and that didn't change at baptism, but his baptism did mark a turning point in his life. It was the start of his public ministry. He moved from being a carpenter, probably just located in one place, not moving around much, to suddenly being an itinerant rabbi, a, a healer, and a teacher proclaiming the kingdom of God. He, he, After his baptism, he built his team of disciples, and he emerged from obscurity, if you will, into a prominent public ministry. So Jesus' baptism was a transition in his life to a new phase of obedience to his father, not that he was disobedient before in any way, but just a, a different phase of his life, a turning point in his life. And at this turning point, we see God the Father affirming Jesus' identity and his character. We read, The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. God affirming that Jesus is his son. And this is one of the few places in scripture where we actually see all three members of the Trinity, all three persons manifest at one time. We have God the Father speaking from heaven, declaring that Jesus is his beloved son, while God the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove onto Jesus. So we have three members of the Trinity and the, Trinity, the concept of Trinity is not mentioned anywhere in Scripture. It's an explanation of what, what we see, and this is one of the clearest places where we see it. So we see these three members um, in distinct locations doing different things, but the Bible affirms that all three are God. In Philippians, it says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father. So the Father is God. In Acts... Peter talks to Ananias and says, Why did Satan fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. So lying to the Holy Spirit was lying to God. The Holy Spirit is God. In Titus, he said, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is our great God as well. So all these verses point to the fact that the different members of the Trinity are all fully God. John the Apostle speaks of Jesus' divinity and his sonship at the start of his ministry, and he links that to John the Baptist's affirmation of Jesus again at, at his start. John said um, at the beginning of, of his gospel, he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's saying this word was Jesus. Um, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father. Again, the word is the Son. The word is God, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. So again, this is one of the clearest affirmations we have in Scripture of the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus really is God. And so, again, at John's baptism, we have all three members of the Trinity. But in Jesus, we have this, this paradox, this one person of the Godhead who's now taking on human form and relating to others like a human should. He's relating to the other members of the Trinity 
like a human would. So we see Jesus, God the Son, praying to God the Father. And that's, that's a human relationship with God the Father, but Jesus has taken on that role. We have Jesus, God the Son, being filled with God the Holy Spirit to empower him for his public ministry which in fact is the same empowering that we as humans need to, to serve God. But he's no less God. Those things don't make him any less God. He's fulfilling all righteousness. He's living like a human would or should and relating righteously to God, even though he himself is God. So he's fulfilling all the righteousness that we need to, even though he's fully God. Following this account of Jesus' baptism, Luke launches into a genealogy of Jesus, which is a long list of so-and-so is the son of such-and-such such, from Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, all the way back to Adam. And, and I read that and said, why did Luke throw that in here? I mean, Luke starts his story before Jesus was born, and then he has Jesus' birth, why didn't he talk about his genealogy then? I mean, wouldn't that have made a lot more sense? Um, why wait until Jesus is 30 years old and about to start his ministry to tell us about his ancestry? And I concluded that Luke is, is too much of a scholar. He's too deliberate and careful in his history to assume that this is just random. Luke has a reason for throwing it in here. And if we throw out for a minute all the paragraph breaks and verse designations, which are human things that have been added in since, and take another look at this passage, it, it flows. A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus is God. Jesus began his ministry, I'm sorry, Jesus when he began his ministry was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. So Luke is putting next to each other, is juxtaposing this concept of God from heaven, declaring that Jesus is beloved son, which establishes his divine nature. And then he starts into this genealogy, which anchors Jesus firmly in human history. It gives him a traceable ancestry all the way back to Adam. So he establishes clearly in the space of a verse and a half that Jesus is both divine, he's both God, and he's the fully human, the presumed son of Joseph, the actual son of Mary, made of real human flesh, real human blood, with a traceable human ancestry all the way back to the beginning of time. In, in fact, as we look through the Gospels, Jesus was so clearly human that many people had a hard time accepting his divinity. So in Matthew 12, we read, And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. The people of Nazareth knew Jesus. They knew his parents. They knew his siblings. He was just another neighborhood kid. They had played ball or whatever they played back in those days with him as a kid. You know, they knew his brothers. They'd married his sisters. He couldn't possibly be the Messiah, right? It just didn't make sense to them. He was just a neighborhood kid. John said the same thing when, when Jesus went to Jerusalem. Um, said, 
Can it be that the authorities really know this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when Jesus appears, no one will know. Or I'm sorry, when Jesus, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. But Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So Jesus didn't suddenly drop out of the sky in human form. People knew where he came from. They knew his earthly family. But Jesus' response to these people in, in Jerusalem points out his dual nature as well. He affirms that, yeah, you know where I came from, but he also affirms his divine nature, that he comes from the one who's true, who, um, and who, yeah, that, he was, that he was sent by God. He affirms that. So people obviously kind of expected that the Messiah would mysteriously appear. I mean, they, they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for someone to come to rescue them from the Romans. And I think they, like us, probably figured uh, this Messiah would just suddenly kind of appear. You know, maybe he'd walk out of the desert without any um, link to, to human history, but in a human body. Um, that would make him kind of more mysterious and, and eliminate a bunch of the messy human relationships that we have. But, but that's not the way Jesus came. He became a part of the human family, the human ancestry that can be traced all the way back to Adam. Now, you're probably aware that both Matthew and Luke have genealogies and they're different. Um, now when they wrote genealogies they talked about so-and-so the son of so-and-so but it wasn't necessarily a direct relation so you can't count the generations there and say well these are the generations of man because we know from from other scriptures that they skipped over some people but it's kind of like saying everybody in Israel was a son of Abraham you know they, they were linked genetically but they weren't necessarily back-to-back but they, they follow through his history consistently. The genealogy is consistent to David, and then it diverges. So Matthew's genealogy follows kind of the kingly line. So after David, it follows Solomon and Rehoboam and, and all the kings right on up to um, Jeconiah, who was also called Jehoiakim, who was the king when Babylon conquered Judah. So all the way through to the end of David's kingly reign. Luke also follows David's line, but through his other son, Nathan. Um, so he also would have been a prince, but he wasn't in that, that line to the throne. There's a lot of controversies about how to interpret these genealogies um, because they're so different. And some have said, well, Luke's is Mary's line and Matthew's is actually Joseph's line. To justify that, you have to read the phrase, in Luke 3, being the son as it was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, it should actually be the son-in-law of Heli. Um, and that's, that's a possible explanation, um, but it's actually not the preferred at the moment. A another explanation is that Joseph's mother's husband died, and in accordance with Mosaic law, um, the mother was given to a brother to produce a son. And in this case, it was actually a half-brother who had a different father but the same mother. And that would give Joseph two different genealogies, the one of his biologic father as well as the one of his legal father, his mother's first husband. 
if that didn't confuse you, um, <laughs> that is one that is kind of the preferred explanation at this point. That also leaves open this question of okay, so if Mary wasn't of the Davidic line, uh, or if that isn't her genealogy, what is her attachment to the Davidic line? Was she a descendant of David? Did Jesus actually have the genes of of David in his genome? Um, the tribes of Israel were instructed to marry within the tribe so that land didn't get given to other tribes. Um, so it's likely that she was marrying within the tribe of Judah uh, and therefore might have had connections to David. On the other hand, Elizabeth is referred to as Mary's relative and is identified as a daughter of Aaron, which would make her a Levite, bloodline to Levi rather than to Judah. The Levites were not given any territory in, in Israel. They didn't have their own land because they served the Lord. And so they were scattered in various cities around the different tribes. So it's reasonable that a Levite could have been living close to somebody in Judah and that a female relative of Mary could have married a Levite or a female relative of Elizabeth could have married someone in, in the Davidic line. Um, it's kind of an interesting thought if Jesus actually had blood ties into the Levitic priesthood. But either way, um, he's declared a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who wasn't a Levite. So there's this confusion. And some people have used that as a reason to discredit the Bible, um, to say in particular that Jesus didn't fulfill the Messianic prophecies. I don't see that as a threat at all. Um, Luke is so careful in his scholarship and so precise. And, and both he and Matthew were willing to anchor their accounts with historical names and events at a time which would have been recent history for the original hearers. So it would have been obvious if their accounts didn't make sense within the context of Jewish history, of Jewish culture, um, for those readers to say, hey, this doesn't make sense, but they didn't. And, and so for us 2,000 years later to say, hey, this doesn't make sense to us, to my mind, is a little bit foolish. Um, we're not sure how to interpret it because we don't have the facts that they had at the day, but they they did not question it. The other piece is, just from my own personal experience with Jesus, I'm confident he is the Messiah. He is the promised son of David. Um, and the rest of scripture certainly supports that. So if we're not sure how to interpret the genealogies, it's not a big deal to, to my mind. Uh, someday God will make it clear. Um, and I'm confident that Jesus is firmly anchored in the Davidic line, whether it's through Mary or Joseph, Jesus' adopted um, father. I mean, as an example, we have adopted kids. Their birth certificate says that Joanna and I are their parents. Um, you know, and we're not, but, but that is the way our culture deals with it. We, we are, but we are not biologically. We, we, it was not, they don't share our genes, but um, yeah, that's the way our culture expresses it as well. So anyway, both Luke and Matthew's genealogies are aligned through David. And with that, Jesus inherited some ghosts in his closet, some relatives and event, events that you didn't talk about in polite company, polite family meals. Matthew actually spells it out more clearly than, than Luke does, um, but it still leaves us a little bit of detective work to figure out what the story was. 
typically in Jewish genealogies, you didn't mention the mother. So whenever a woman is mentioned, you sort of sit up and take notice. It's like, hey, why did, why did they mention that? What was he trying to point out? Which isn't to say that all the women in Jesus' genealogy had character issues. Um, it was usually the men who were associated with those women who had character issues. But the fact is that we're all sinners. And every one of those names in the genealogy was a sinner, just like we're all sinners. And most of their stories are untold, but there's a few that we know about which is true of all of us. So Matthew says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. There's the first woman. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, the second woman, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, the third woman, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So first, being part of the Jewish nation, part of Israel, Jesus obviously had ties back to Abraham. He was a son of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob, that the Jewish people like to say, a member of the physical nation through whom God planned to bless the entire earth. And in fact, Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise to, to bless everyone. And those men are highly, highly esteemed by the Jewish people, but they were human and flawed. Um, which we see readily when we read through Genesis. I mean, Abraham was a former idolater who twice allowed his wife to be taken to other men because he was too cowardly to claim that she was his wife. And Jacob was a cheat and a usurper who stole his brother's birthright. And they, they were guys who had character flaws, just like we do. Judah was the son of Jacob's least favorite wife, Leah, the one his father-in-law snuck in on him. He participated in selling Joseph into slavery, selling his brother into slavery. And Judah had three sons. The first of two were so first two were so wicked that the Lord put them to death on the spot for their sin. Um, by rights, his daughter-in-law, the, the wife of the first son, should have been given to the surviving son, to this third son, to raise up children to him. That was kind of their social security of the day. Their kids took care of their moms. Um, but Judah was afraid that his third son would die, as, as if Tamar was the cause, which, which she wasn't. Um, so he didn't do what was culturally required. But apparently... Tamar knew that Judah was in the habit of consorting with prostitutes. So she dressed like one and positioned herself in the road where she knew he would go. And sure enough, she became pregnant with twins by him. And it's those twins, Perez, that was Jesus' ancestor, one of, one of those twins. By Jewish law, which didn't come until Moses' time, both Judah and Tamar should have been put to death for that sinful act. Father-in-laws were forbidden from approaching their daughter-in-laws in that way. Um, but God in his mercy allowed Perez to live, one of those illegitimate twins, to become an ancestor of the messianic line. A few generations we meet yet another of these unsavory relatives, 
Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. So Rahab we think of as, as the hero of the story of Israel's attempt to take Jericho. So when they sent in spies, she hid them from the king's soldiers so that they could survive. And she expressed faith in God. She was confident that God was going to give the Israelites the city. And so she negotiated a deal whereby she and her family would be spared when Jer Jericho was conquered. But God had given instructions to the Israelites about the inhabitants of Canaan, and his instructions were, but in the cities of those people that the Lord is giving to you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, nothing that breathes, kill it all. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. So God had promised this promised land to the Israelites hundreds of years earlier. He promised to Abraham hundreds of years earlier they're going to get this land. But he also told Abraham, the sin of the Canaanites hasn't reached the point where I'm prepared to destroy them. It's going to take 400 years. So... You guys hang out in Egypt while, while they're getting really bad. But now at the point that the Israelites are moving in, this land is so wicked that God has determined that everything should die. And in the midst of that culture, Rahab was a prostitute. She certainly participated in the sexual sin, and that was likely part of their cult worship. Um, so if you will, the worst of the worst, in a sense. But she recognized the work of God and the people of Israel. And by faith, she saw that the God of Israel was the true God. And in reverent fear, she tried to honor him in the only way she knew how. And honestly, in the only way that's available to us. And that is throwing herself at the mercy of God. Manifesting her faith through action of protecting the spies. And as a result, she's mentioned in the New Testament as an example of the interplay between faith and works. James says, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? She's also mentioned in the Hall of Fame, the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she was given a because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So despite the Lord's instructions to kill everything breathing in Jericho, so that the sinful practices of the Canaanites wouldn't be passed on to Israel, the Lord responded to Rahab's simple expressions of faith and humility with mercy and grace. And she was spared, and she married an Israelite man, and ultimately became a member of Jesus' family line despite being a Gentile with a wicked past. When Samuel was looking at David's brothers to choose the next king, the Lord said to him, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I think that's the picture we see with Rahab. The Lord looked at her heart. Outwardly, she was someone that nice people stayed away from. But the Lord saw her heart and the sincerity of her faith and that resulted in a humble appeal to him for mercy and grace. So the next woman we meet is Ruth. 
Um, and from the book of Ruth, we know her to be noble character. She sacrificed herself to care for her widowed mother-in-law. I mean, the, the book of Ruth is a beautiful story, the kind of thing you'd put on the Hallmark Channel. Um, but she was actually born into a nation that was under God's judgment. She was a Moabite. If you remember... Abraham's nephew Lot who moved to Sodom and then the angel of the Lord came and pulled him out he and his wife and their two daughters and they were fleeing the city his wife looked back and turned to a pillar of salt and Lot and his daughters made it in the hill country and the daughters were living there and they thought there's no men around here for us to get married so they got their father drunk and had sons by him and the son of the oldest daughter was Moab who founded the Moabites and the story gets worse from there. When Israel was leaving Egypt to come to the Promised Land, the king of Moab hired Balaam to curse them. And when that failed, Balaam gave advice and said, well, have your women seduce the men, and God's judgment will fall. And sure enough, they did that, and, and God did punish Israel as a result. Because of their hostility to Israel, God promised judgment on Moab. He said, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way, and when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Peor, from Pethor in, of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Did you catch that? Even to the tenth generation, none of them can enter the assembly of the Lord forever. So Ruth was actually a person under God's judgment, not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord, not allowed to associate with the people of Israel or participate in worship. And on top of that, the Moabites worship Chemosh, who was God who gave them military victory in exchange for child sacrifice. They would heat up statues of this god, the idols, red hot, and then place a live baby into his burning arms. That was the religious practice of the Moabites. Naomi and her family had no business being in Moab. When it came time for Naomi to return to Israel, I suspect she knew that the Moabites were under this judgment, and she knew what kind of reception her daughter-in-laws were going to get if they went to Israel that there'd be discrimination and rejection and even open hostility. And I suspect that's why she so strongly urged her daughter-in-laws to stay with their birth families. But Ruth responded with faith in the God of Israel. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. The Lord saw her earnest desire to pursue him and honored her heart, and she found refuge in Israel. She found a home with Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, and ultimately became King David's great-grandmother and a member of Jesus' bloodline. And years later, Isaiah had this prophecy about the daughters of Moab, which it's almost directly talking about Ruth, I think. He says, like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice. 
Make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcasts. Shelter these outcasts from Moab. Israel, shelter these outcasts. Do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and the destruction has ceased, he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love. What is that throne? On it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. He's talking about Jesus the Messiah watching over these fugitives from Moab, these ones who have turned to him for shelter. The final woman mentioned in Jesus' genealogy is Bathsheba, um, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, with whom David committed adultery and then later murdered Uriah so that he could cover that up. And then the two genealogies split, Solomon and Nathan. But interestingly, both those sons, Nathan and Solomon, are both children of Bathsheba. Even though David had many different wives, many children older than them, it was through Bathsheba's line that both the genealogies go. So what's the take-home message in this? The first is, going back to where we started, Jesus is fully God. He's declared to be God, the Son, the Son of God. He's declared to be the Son of God by God the Father at his baptism at the start of his ministry. And he's shown to be God by all the corroborating miracles. Jesus is God. He's fully God. He's a full-fledged member of the Trinity but he's also fully human. He has this complete genealogy that can be traced all the way back to Adam. And as such, he fulfills the very first messianic prophecy that we see in Genesis when God cursed the snake. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this one who would bruise the head of the serpent had to be human. He had to be an offspring of the woman. And Jesus was the offspring of a human woman, but not of a human man. He was the promised ruler of the tribe of Judah that was prophesied way back um, by um, Israel, by Jacob himself. He was the son of David, the shoot coming from the stump of Jesse. His human genealogy establishes all of that. The author of Hebrews further explains why our Savior needed to be both human and divine. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. We have this high priest who represents us before the throne of God and who is God himself. And what better advocate can we have before God than God himself? But it actually gets better than that. He goes on, For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus understands what we go through. But one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He was fully human. He experienced what we experienced, but without sin. Let us then draw let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
He goes on, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, prayers and requests with a loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was his son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Look, we, we have a high priest standing before God who is God himself, but he's also fully human like we are. He's been tempted like we are. He prayed and didn't get the answer he wanted. He suffered when he didn't deserve it, just like sometimes we do. And sometimes we suffer when we do deserve it. But he did it all out of obedience to the Father, just like we do. He was a priest like Melchizedek, not of a Levitical line, but one appointed by God himself priest who is perfectly righteous and fully familiar with the challenges of life in a sinful world. That's the one who represents us before God. And as the high priest, Hebrews said, Christ has entered not into the holy place made by hands, not into a human-made temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's standing there before God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He had to do this because the writer of Hebrews also says, in the heavenly economy, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Blood had to be shed to forgive sin, and Jesus offered his own as the ultimate sacrifice. But look at this. God is immortal. God cannot die. God does not have blood to shed. God had to become human. Jesus had to be human to make the sacrifice that's required to rescue us. He had to be human to pay the death penalty that we owed. He had to be human to shed the blood that was required to wash away the sin. So Jesus, our high priest, enters into the holy of holies place, into the real one, into the very throne room of God, and there offers himself. He pours out his own blood to cover my sin and your sin so that we can take on his righteousness. He had to be both human and divine to do that. And being fully human, Jesus knows what it is to have a genealogy that contains some members that we would rather not mention. But his genealogy also says that all are welcome into his family. He could have chosen a cleaner family line, but he didn't. He did it to show that it doesn't matter if you are a Canaanite prostitute or an accursed Moabite forbidden to enter the assembly of Israel. If you come by faith, you too can be a member of Jesus' family. He's not worried about your DNA, about your, your lineage. He's worried about your personal faith. Your background doesn't matter. Even the things that you did didn't matter. John the Baptist told those coming to him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. This is 
brood of vipers we talked about in Sunday school. It, it means literally you offspring of snakes, you children of poisonous snakes. What famous snake do we know in the Bible? Satan himself. And both John and Jesus use this term, the brood of vipers, for the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, the most spiritual people in Israel. They probably had squeaky clean lineages because Levites were forbidden from marrying outside the Levitical tribe if they wanted to serve in the temple. And the Pharisees had excellent credentials with regard to keeping the law. But Jesus said to them, to these religious leaders, he said, I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. From God's view, our genetic heritage is not as important as our faith inheritance. It didn't matter that these Jewish spiritual leaders had an uninterrupted line all the way back to Abraham. Their behavior proved that they weren't following Abraham, that they weren't following God, that they were children of Satan in God's view. It didn't matter that Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute or that Ruth was a Moabite. Their faith made them children of Abraham, children of the promise. Paul says the same is true of us in Galatians. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And he goes further in Romans 4. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares faith with Ab the, shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Abraham only had one son, but he is the father of many nations, because all who recognize their hopeless that they are hopelessly sinful can come to Jesus in faith, trusting in his shed blood to cover our sin and to make us righteous in the sight of the Father. When we do that, we become offspring of Abraham. Um, you know, Revelation talks about people from every tribe and tongue coming. He's going to end up being father of people from every nation on earth, this Abraham, because they come by faith. So we hear in Fillmore, who likely have little, if any, Jewish blood in us, are children of Abraham, children of the promise, adopted sons and daughters of God, if we truly place our faith in Jesus alone. Let's pray. 
Lord, I thank you for that promise that we can be adopted members of your family. We can be children of Abraham, not because we have some genetic line, um, but by faith, Lord, that that is what you look at. God, I pray that each of us would examine our hearts. Lord, would come to you humbly, knowing that, that we are sinful, that our bloodlines are smirched, that we need a Savior, and that we would accept your gift by faith to become members of, of your family. Lord, I thank you for that gift that we can enjoy. In Jesus' name, amen.